You are listening to the Purpose of Money podcast, episode 16, The State of Real Estate During COVID-19. You are listening to the Purpose of Money podcast, a podcast where we talk about ways to build wealth and create more freedom in your life today. I am your host, Aquania Escarnet. Hey guys, welcome back to the Purpose of Money podcast. This week, I am so excited to have our special guest who is a real estate agent, well-versed on the state of the real estate market. This is a continuation of our series on Home Ownership Month, which is all of the month of June. I've been giving you guys some bonus episodes all about how to get started in your journey to invest in real estate. The previous episodes included a real estate agent who is an investor in addition to an agent who managed to buy properties from overseas. Her name is Tanya Salsef. I also did an episode last week with Nikki Dade and Pam Dorsey, who are the partners in Paragon Investment Partners. They are investing in multifamily syndication deals that are multi-million dollar deals. And this week, we're going to talk about how real estate has been impacted by COVID-19. I hope you continue to listen to the series. We'll be having our last episode next week featuring Kendra Barnes. Many of you might know her as Kendra Barnes of The Key Resource. She helps people get into their first investment and build their own investment empire. Kendra was able to retire from her government job in her 30s because of the proceeds from her passive income earned on real estate. Without further ado, I want to get into this subject. Hey guys, welcome back to the Purpose of Money podcast. I'm super excited to have special guest Rihanna Miller on the podcast today. Rye, as I call her, Rihanna Miller, <laughs> originally from Anchorage, Alaska, and now a DC transplant. She's an investor, developer, and realtor with Compass. As a part of the greater capital area, she specializes in first time home buying residential buying and selling, international clientele, investments, and most recently started focusing on opportunity zones. As an entrepreneur, she currently owns businesses in Maryland and the District of Columbia. Rye, welcome to the show. How you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day outside. It's finally not 92 degrees, so my Alaskan self can take a nice walk without sweating. <laughs> so I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yes. And I'm so glad you can join us. The month of June is National Home Ownership Month. And I've been taking the opportunity to share with my audience some more tips and tricks about home ownership, but also real estate investing, because I want us to be more than homeowners. I want us to be serial entrepreneurs. Let's talk a little bit about you. Ryan and I met when I was actually recruiting people to join my job. We were looking for diverse candidates for our top positions to join a diplomatic corps or our civil service. And Ryan had a strong interest in international affairs and also a passion to see the world. So tell us more about yourself. How did that Ryan? turn into the realtor and investor and serial entrepreneur that you are today. 
So thank you, Aquania. But I think the biggest transition was actually my international experience. So I started uh, traveling with my mom at a younger age, seeing the world. And then when I actually went to college, I had the opportunity to actually complete a scholarship to the U.S. State Department for diverse students called the Benjamin A. Gilman Scholarship. And through that, I was what you you know would call an exchange alumni, and I got to go to different forums and opportunities and how we met and really got out there. But the core was that experience in South Africa, studying abroad for six weeks. It was the first time I was away from my mother. It was the first time I went out of the country, um, not on a vacation. I was there for a purpose. Through Duke, I was there to do research and understand the culture. And so it was a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. And I think that sometimes in that uncomfortable situation or that, you know, moment where you really have to grow and get out of your comfort zone is where you're willing to take risks. So after I returned, I felt like, well, I slept in a hut for four days conducting research. Like I can, I can do this. I can take risks in my life. It's okay. Um, And so when I got back, I still pursued international affairs. I have a graduate degree from American University specializing in conflict resolution and international negotiation. And and so with that, I I went to work at an amazing firm that really heightened my skills on public-private partnerships and people and, and really connecting different cultures and intercultural communication. And so I think that's really what brought me to DC. I'm based in DC, but I do work all over. Um, Before COVID, I was all over Alabama and speaking at different schools and conferences and really just spreading the message on how important it is to get out and see the world. And I think once you get out and see the world and experience other cultures, you not only understand your culture better, but you have a more heightened experience of what you want to have your home look like and what it means to be home and what it means to have your peace of mind. So I think that those international experiences and that international work is really what eventually led me to real estate, understanding that home being that core base. If I go out into the world and go on these different vacations, I want my home to be safe and secure and have the amenities that I want and the location that I want. I want home to be my peace as I'm out in the world doing what I do. So I think that's really what led me here, what led me to you. And so I'm excited to speak with everyone about kind of the ins and outs of the home buying process and how important it is to really start to work to build that wealth. That's awesome. And I'm excited too. So let's get to it. (laughs) What made you, like you kind of talked about a little bit, your transition, you did travel, but then also getting into real estate and becoming a realtor. Tell me how hard was that? Like, what's the process? Do you take an exam or do you just sign up? Like, how do you become a realtor? Well, I, so the way that I actually became a realtor was I've always loved HGTV. And if you watch four hours or more a week on HGTV, you already think you're a realtor. You think you <laughs> do it. You think you have that home design. I mean, just literally, you you are kind of in the zone like, I've seen Property Brothers. I can do that. Um, and so it wasn't until I had a knock on my door one day. I was living in an apartment in D.C. and my landlord actually decided to sell. So there is a law in D.C. that states that you actually have to ask the tenant first if they would like to purchase the actual property. They asked me and I said, well, yeah, sure. I love this apartment. What is the price? They told me the price for this one bedroom, one bath apartment 
Um, it was around 389. And having lived in the South, I couldn't for for about five years, I couldn't fathom picturing paying $389 for a one-bedroom, one-bath apartment. But it got me thinking. And I remember as I spoke to the listing agent, who's now my team lead, um, and, and I say to him, I'm like, well, that's a little pricey, don't you think? And we just start laughing and smiling. He says, you have the smile for real estate. I said, well, what is a real estate smile? I don't really know <laughs> what that is. He's like, your energy. So a part of it, you know, I took his card and I'm like, all right. And a year later, as it got time for me to start thinking, I decided to rent again, but it got time for me to start thinking about what that really looks like in, in owning a home. So I decided to move out for six months, save my money, save, 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 and actually purchase a home in D.C. And through that process, that same listing agent from that apartment became my buyer's agent. And it was the best experience I've had. I heard that you should wait until you get married, you know, to actually purchase a property. Or I heard that you should save a lot more money before you purchase a property. Or I heard all different types of stuff about, you know, maybe you should, you're, you're only 27. Why are you purchasing a home? There's so many other things you can be doing with your money. And so I think that it was extremely important to me to, I, I understood the long-term process. I understood the market from DC. So what I did is those six months, I mean, it was top ramen. It was, I was only driving places that were necessary, completely necessary. I was saving, 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 saving. And through that process, within, I think I looked at five or six homes, I found my home, we placed an offer, it got accepted, and I moved in three weeks later. And it was such a smooth process. I have been in my home for two and a half years, and I haven't had any type of issues, any hiccups. And so within the first year of owning my home, I said, wow, I start talking to my other friends. A lot of them were African-American single women and saying, well, how did you do it? And I'm like, well, I just saved money and it was pretty easy. We've heard all these horror stories of home buying, but I didn't have that experience. And so I wanted to offer that same ease and that same, I guess, in-depth, the care that my real, my real estate agent, Lou Moscarella, took with me. I wanted to offer just really that opportunity to un- not only buy a home, but understand the market in which you're buying the home understand how the features of your home could change. You know, there's a difference between owning a two bedroom and a three bedroom in terms of resale value. So I wanted to help other people that look like me that kept, you know, they kept asking me like, Rye, how did you do it? And, and there's so many ways that I could answer that question, but I just kind of felt that with my love of people and, you know, everyone asked me all the time, you know, do you, do you use your master's? Well, conflict resolution and negotiation. Absolutely. <laughs> Every day, if you've gone through a real estate transaction, you know that there could be conflict and there's always negotiations. So I use my, my intercultural communication skills, working with diverse buyers and sellers and listing agents and all kinds of things. So I really just dove in, just wanting to help one friend that asked me how to do it. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to help her, I might as well get my real estate license. And so within getting that real estate license, just to start off in any jurisdiction, have at least three to $4,000 saved. Because within that, there is, every jurisdiction is different. So in particular, DC, you have to have 60 hours of, of real estate classes and you have to pass that actual real estate class. And that can range probably a few hundred dollars, um, depending on the class, whether it's virtual, um, in person, who's it, who it is with. I use the CE shop. 
um, because I like to kind of go at my own pace. So it took me about three months to go at my own pace, um, pass the class test, and then go on and sit for my DC test. So sitting for your DC test or most other exams should be anywhere from $50 to $70 for the actual test, which is normally done through a testing center such as PSI. And then after you pass that test, then you have to, you don't have to, but it's better um, to become part of a realtor's association. So there's two different types of people that sell real estate. There's a real estate agent, and then there's a realtor, which a realtor is someone that is designated by the actual national agency and and jurisdictional state level um, agencies. So I'm a realtor, which means I can put the little copyrighted R and in capital letters um, afterwards. But that basically just means that we have a lot of different access, great communities to the Association of National Realtors, as as well as um, I'm part of the greater capital area realtors association. So there's, there's really great benefits with that. There's ways to get involved, to volunteer. If you're a realtor, um, a real estate agent, um, you can still do some of the same work, but a realtor is just a little bit more, um, in depth and broad being a part of that association. So those fees can sometimes be a thousand dollars. Um, and then your actual licensing fee is about two sixty, two eighty. So when you get everything, um, from start to finish, what it looks like from taking the exam, excuse me, from taking the class to sitting to the exam, and then to actually obtaining your license and becoming a part of an association, um, any type of marketing you may need, anything that that looks like, at the minimum, I would say have $3,000 saved and ready. So that's really how I became a realtor. And I've been with Compass, which is, in my opinion, the best brokerage in, in the country. Um, it's been an amazing experience and I've been with Compass since January, 2019. And I, and that's about when I got my real estate license. So we actually have a couple of things in common. So I'm going to go back for a second. You went through an experience and you got a lot of questions and then you decided I should become this. So that's exactly what I did. I used to get a lot of money questions (laughs) and I was trying to figure out how do I help people on a broader scale and get some credentials too. So that's what drove me to become a financial coach and to get my life insurance license because that was the first place that you can kind of get in and have credentials for your state to be able to talk broadly about some other financial planning aspects. And then I did the same thing. I joined the company that was my best experience with a financial advisor. (laughs) So it's so funny how like your team lead was literally the listing trying to sell you an apartment, which he didn't right. successfully do, but right. because of building relationships a year later, when you are ready to take your personal career to the next level, he was there to help you. My financial advisor, I met him in 2015. We really hit it off, but it wasn't until 2016 that I got a license. I want to really help people with their money. So I think that's so yeah. cool how we have those similar experiences. And a lot of people do. And most people will come to you if they trust you Mm -hmm. and they're really comfortable with the advice that you give them because it makes sense because you've built a relationship. So I think that's really dope. How has the pandemic really impacted your business Mm -hmm. um, and the housing market in this area? Since this is the DC area is your area of expertise. What are some things that you've noticed? Yes, absolutely. So in, I'll start with in terms of my business. And, and I think that it, it's not going to go remiss to say that it has been devastating for many communities, many families, many people. 
Um, my heart, my thoughts, my prayers go out to people that have been affected by this. Um, but I must say that every day I wake up um, feeling extremely fortunate and blessed that my business, um, as a, technically I'm a small business owner, I am, you know, compasses my brokerage, encompasses the company that I work for. But essentially, I I run I run my own subset of that business. So each team or each particular realtor is we're our own business owner. I pay my own taxes. I pay my own health insurance. So there's things that I do on my own as a business owner that are a little bit separate from my brokerage or my company. So in terms of being a business owner, I have actually seen a spike in buyers. My listings have pretty much stayed the same. And I think many other people's listings have stayed the same. Uh, anybody that has gone under contract with buying or selling in February, for the most part, what we have seen is that those those same contracts have continued out through March, closing in May, closing in 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 June, and so I think for me, um, I mean, during May, I had at least eight to ten clients, new clients. They were referrals. They were people that were, um, you know, kind of like, all right, this is the time. I think because what COVID did is especially in buyers change that mindset of home and what is comfortable for me. You know, at Compass, our motto is helping everyone find their place in the world. And that's one of the reasons why I love Compass, just kind of international affairs, finding your place in the world, whatever home looks like to you. And I think people started to understand that. The people that were like, all right, I can live in this studio um, until I save up. Or some of the same people that are like, okay, I can't live in this studio anymore, Rye. I would like to probably purchase a two-bedroom, two-bath, a condo. I, I, I realized how important it is for me to have an office or a, a home gym or a, another just meditation room or whatever that may look like to, to anybody to have that idea of a safe, secure functioning home. So I think there was a large spike in buyers. Also, um, what happened, so I guess that was the positive stuff is my business has been working. Um, things have been taken a little bit slower uh, because certain entities uh, have, you know, whether they're government entities or home inspectors have been slowing down a little bit to make sure that everyone practices social distancing. And a lot of people are working from home for the first time ever in their career. So understanding what that looks like to being able to pace yourself um, is your home and not going into the office and that kind of alteration. So certain things during the transaction have slowed down. However, with, like I said, with my buyers, um, there's been a lot of uh, actual just interest and in, in getting pre-qualified. And, and I was reading an article the other day that actually in May, there's a 19% uh, raise since last year in people applying for mortgage uh, to, to a lender, to an actual lender. So I think that we, if we're seeing almost 20% more rise in people applying for mortgages, we're definitely seeing more interest in what it looks like uh, in terms of buying a home. And on the listing side, we have a little bit less inventory. DC has already normally been a lower inventory, I guess, market. DC is very small, almost 700,000 actual residents in the district, around 36 square miles. And so it's we're relatively small. The actual district is small. The Maryland, Virginia areas surrounding are large and stretch out all throughout the DMV. But DC is actually very small. We already had limited housing, limited inventory, and it's definitely gone down because you have a lot of sellers that are like, I don't want people to come look at my house. 
Um, I'm not really comfortable with having showings or open houses, um, and of which open houses were suspended April 1st through, through the stay-at-home order within D.C., so we haven't been able to have open houses yet. We've been working on great virtual tools to have those open houses and, and really the video kind of tours have been crucial. And so I think on the listing side, if it's a vacant property, it was fine. Anything vacant, people have been still feeling safe to come see. And I know I had a vacant property that was listed and within 16 days, we definitely got an offer. We were under contract. And a part of that, which is every single, after every single showing, Um, I went over with my mask, my gloves, my cleaning supplies, and I wiped down everything. So I just wanted to feel that even though if something were to happen, I felt as a realtor, because I am an essential worker, that I did everything possible to make sure that the home that that I have under contract is clean for anybody that were to come in there. So I think there was a point when we first put it on the market. I mean, every 10, every, every day for almost 10 days, I was going through cleaning, you know, spraying, disinfecting, um, all that stuff, just to make sure people that were coming in there next um, had the, had the, you know, I guess the healthiest option to go ahead and view the home and kind of that peace of mind that it's clean. Um, so I think that that's one thing that I've seen in my particular business. Um, that Those are the positives. And the negative, unfortunately, would be that uh, FHA loan, which is a federal housing administration loan, um, really what has happened, which is a, excuse me, uh, through HUD, and really what happened with the federal loans, um, an FHA loan as opposed to a conventional, there's two types of loans that we love. The first is FHA and the second is conventional. Uh, conventional is just normal, interest rates um, have to have a credit score normally over a 660 and have to have probably at least, if, uh, excuse me, 5% saved. So at the minimum for conventional, they really don't like to see anything less than 5%. FHA allows you to put down 3%, which is the type of loan that I use for my home. So we have a lower down payment. However, sometimes there's a higher monthly premium that you have to pay for an FHA loan because they require mortgage insurance. So that mortgage insurance can vary, but they change the lending rules during COVID which state now that if you're doing an FHA loan, you actually, if you have student loans, you have to have at least 1% of what you owe on your student loans counted towards your monthly payment, which if you can imagine as someone, we understand the market. When I graduated undergrad from Alabama A&M University, zero. I owed not a penny in student loans. I went to other institutions and (laughs) happily that I definitely am am feeling super energized and super educated, (laughs) but it is over $100,000 worth of loans. So for someone that may have $100,000 worth of loans, that 1% is $1,000 that they have to add on to their monthly payment. And most people can't afford that. I can't afford that you know, in terms of buying a home, just having that extra. So you're paying, you know, in DC, possibly 1900 for a mortgage. And then if you're, if you have student loans, a hundred thousand plus, you have to put another thousand dollars onto that a month. That's $2,900. So it's been making a lot of buyers ineligible um, if they want to use FHA and really thinking on what that looks like to do conventional. Um, And so I've been helping my clients through that. So let me ask you this, because that's, to me, that's crazy. And I agree with you. It can be extremely expensive. 
So can we just explain that one more time? Is it for the approval yes. process? They were adding an extra thousand dollars as to qualify you, but your actual mortgage payment was is whatever the mortgage payment is, right? It's not a thousand dollars more just because of your student loans, or is it? I just want to clarify. It can be. Uh-huh. So what they do, yes, it can be. So in order to pre like to pre-approve you to have that pre-qualification letter, lenders, if they're doing FHA, have to add on that one percent. So it, it all gets down to as well other interest rates, the standard interest rates, which is good because they've dropped about a point on mm-hmm. average. They were in the 4.5, 4.6 range. They've dropped to 3.4, 3.5, 3.7. Um, so it all depends on a lot of factors like credit, like other consumer debt that someone may have, car loans, credit card loans, all depending. So that mortgage insurance is really telling FHA or telling HUD this is the type of borrower that I am. So it all varies. It can, but it can be up to 1%. So the lenders, their job is to run it as if the worst case scenario, that's always the lender's job is to give you an over exaggerated amount. Just so nine times out of 10, I tell my clients that it's not going to be at that top percent, but that's their job to tell you the worst case scenario, because if you can afford worst case scenario, you can always afford a better scenario. So I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes Absolutely. a lot more but, sense, but it's yeah, still crazy. Yeah. It I've is crazy. And uh, I've, I've had my feelings about the mortgage insurance because for those that don't know, mortgage insurance is not an insurance that protects you, the buyer. It's an insurance that protects the bank. It's money that some people pay every month for the possibility that if they stop paying their mortgage for any reason, like in 2008, when a lot of people lost jobs or the ability to pay for their mortgage, if you default on your mortgage loan, the bank gets paid the insurance on the loan because you stop paying and you're paying that insurance for them. So there's a couple of ways to get around it. One is you go traditional and not FHA because as long as you go traditional, it's not required to have mortgage insurance if you have enough down payment. So some ways to get rid of the insurance is to put 20% down on your home, right? But 20%, depending on the area where you live, could be a lot of savings. It could be years of savings. And if you're getting a $200,000 house, 20% could be $40,000. But in our area, which is very expensive, you can't find a lot of properties for $200,000. So if you actually want a single family home, you might be looking at what, four to 500,000 just to get a single family home. And that's in certain areas, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it went in the area where I live in the school district where I live, the median home price is like 600,000. And so you're paying for a location, you're paying for a good school system, you are also paying for the high value properties that are in the DC, Maryland and Virginia area. And I know I live in Virginia, so it's a little bit different. Maryland, you can find more affordable housing, but you'll pay more in taxes. Virginia, we pride ourselves on paying less in taxes, but we pay more for everything else. You got to kind of balance that out too, uh, but property mortgage insurance or mortgage insurance in general, it's it can be tough for some people. And 
I know for a lot of homeowners who go with the FHA loan, even when you've gotten your equity at a point where you don't need it anymore, you sometimes still have to pay the mortgage insurance because it's required under the FHA loan. So keep that in mind, listeners. When you are shopping around, it's nice to be able to put less down. And when you use the FHA loan, that's one of the benefits. But you also need to look at the other costs. And if you can qualify for a different type of loan that lowers your overall cost, it's worth considering, right? Absolutely. Okay. So one way that we found around that um, through FHA is doing first-time homebuyer programs. And I can definitely go ahead and send you over the PowerPoint and all the information and links that I have. So if you wanted to give these to any of your um, listeners, I think that would be great. Um, what I have is for DC, Maryland, Virginia, but I encourage listeners from all over the country to check with your state, check with your actual city jurisdiction, check with your county, um, all, all three, because they offer all different types of first-time homebuyer programs. I know in DC, you can get up to $84,000. Uh, in some instances for, for first time home buying. Um, there's, there's all kinds of things, the HPAP, the home pa- home purchase assistance program for DC, DC open doors. Um, you know, the department of housing in, in VA has a whole bunch of first time home buyer programs. If you're military, um, the VA has a whole bunch of great programs. There's Maryland. If you're in PG County, there's a pathways to purchase program where you can get up to $10,000 for down payment assistance. Um, And most of these are, they do have minimum income restrictions and they do have certain home buyer education classes that you have to take, whether they're HUD approved or that particular jurisdictional approved. Uh, however, they have been, I've had clients come to the closing table owing 52 cents. It takes some time getting through everything. Yep, 52 cents. I had another client owed a dollar and eight cents. And like, you know, you just remember those, <laughs> you remember those numbers. And like, when the title attorney says, all right, well, you owe 52 cents. So we all kind of looked at each other. And this particular client, her sister was at the table and she goes in her bag and hands her two quarters and a penny and everybody at the table starts laughing. And her sister says, don't say I didn't do anything for you, sis, you know, like giving her the 52 cents she needed to close. Now, mind you, we had to actually have it in an um, actual check and everything, but it was hilarious. And it's just these programs, they do take a little bit longer. So standard to close on a home can be as little as 14 days I've seen. But sometimes with these programs, they do take two, three months. But when you get into the home and where you've only had to really pay for a home inspection and that earnest money deposit, which is the money you put down when you first make an offer that says, I'm really serious about this home, that can be anywhere from $1,000 to $5,000, $6,000. Outside of that, I've helped clients not have to put anything down themselves. It's all been through the city, through these different programs. Well, as Fargo has an amazing program called the Neighborhood Lift Program. Uh, where they offer up to $22,000, $22,500 um, for first-time home buyers, first responders, teachers. Um, so I would encourage all the listeners out there to look into your actual county, your city, your state, and just type in first-time home buyer programs and see what opportunities are out there. I love that. Thank you for sharing those resources. And I just want to reiterate, before you make any major purchase, it's really important to do your due diligence And I definitely agree with Rye that you should research what is your state, county, and your bank offering. 
I know my credit union, for example, they don't have a first-time home buyer program. They have a home buyer program, and they actually have it set up where if you go through their home buyer program, they have money that they give back to you at the closing table. So you get a check if you go through their program. Now, of course, this is an incentive for you to also get your loan through them. But if you do decide to go with them because they have the best interest rate for you or the best loan for you, you get to save and you get cash back. So I always tell people, do your research, figure out what you're entitled to and use the best option for yourself. When I purchased my home in Virginia, I decided not to go through them because I decided to get a new construction property and the builder had a better incentive plan than the bank. But I've never forgotten that program and I've recommended it to so many other members of the credit union who are looking into purchasing a home. So Mm -hmm. definitely do your research. Look for, I always tell people to even compare interest rates. Here's a money tip for you. Before you run your credit score, you can go and talk to several banks and ask them what are their current interest rates for homes. And you can get a range of what you might be qualified for just by having a conversation with a mortgage lender. Talk to them about your potential debt, your credit score, and your income. And they should be able to give you a good range of where you might qualify, whether it's for their best interest rate, their middle interest rate, or their low or their highest interest rate, because maybe you have credit or a lower credit score. And you can have that conversation all without running your credit. So this gives you the opportunity to kind of compare and shop around with banks before you start to seriously run your credit. So keep that in mind. It's a great way to shop around. And Rai, I want to thank you again for your suggestions as well for helping people find home buyer programs. So I do kind of want to talk a little bit about you because you are a homeowner. Yes. <laughs> and you are selling homes. So as someone, if someone out there is interested, can you tell us what seems to be the most common barrier between people becoming homeowners and how do you think they can tackle that obstacle head on? Absolutely. From I can speak with my experience. Um, the majority of people that I I work with are millennials, um, those under 35, 40 years old. And I think the biggest barrier that I found within my clients has been student loans. Um, is is really what's been because when a when a when a home when a, excuse me when a lender actually starts to run, you know, okay, is this person qualified? Are we going to trust giving them a 300, $350,000, $500,000 loan? They look at the totality of everything they have to pay in the month. So when you're doing a standard mortgage application or for to get pre-qualified, you're putting in how much you spend on your rent, how much you spend on gas, how much you spend on how much your car note is, how much your American Express credit card, this credit card, you know, you're they're gathering what your monthly expenses will be. And one of those and one of the highest monthly expenses outside of rent or mortgage is student loans for many, for many of us as Americans. And so when you're working with people that have, you know, 300, 900, $1,200 in student loans, 
the lender is saying, well, $1,200 is a mortgage within itself in some places. So I don't really know how I feel about them taking on two mortgages. They may have great credit. They may have a 700. They may have, you know, just never had a history of default. There may be other things in place. They may have, you know, 20,000 for, excuse me, 20% for a down payment. However, when it gets to what it is, is that principal and interest and what it looks like of the totality of your monthly, monthly mortgage payment. And a lot of that people are halted with these student loans and what that looks like. Um, because most of us have an average of over 50000 in student loans, which can be a few hundred dollars a month. So the way that I have seen, uh, there's two ways that I've approached this. Uh, in terms of student loans, excuse me, three ways. The first way is to see if you can get your loans consolidated and call your, your uh, whoever that may be, Navient, whomever your student loans are through, and to see if you can get on an income-based uh, repayment plan. So sometimes they do not actually factor in how much you're, you're making unless you call and get that set up. And they've been actually really friendly, especially the last year, um, with, with working with people and saying, okay, I'm making $75,000. I don't know if I should be paying a thousand dollars. I know I have $150,000 worth of student loans, but this is how much I'm making. So they say, oh, wow, we didn't know you were making $75,000. All right, let's switch this $1,200 payment to a $400 payment, right? Something that's just a little bit more doable for you. So getting on that, either consolidating all of them to where you have one payment, if you're, if you're, owing a lot of different entities for your student loans and or an income-based repayment plan is really the best option to get that down, which is what a lot of lenders will tell buyers. Um, The second is sometimes shifting in what your dream home, you know, may look like. I, my dream home, I found out is a $1.5 million brownstone in Northwest but I'm not there. And I love where I'm at. You know, I, 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 I wasn't, I was looking, I was like, yeah, I want open living and granite and huge ceilings and, you know, probably just a, and, and it was like, well, Rihanna, this is what you qualify for. So this is where you need to look at. And it, it kind of hurt a little bit. I was like, all right, well, this is different. Um, but, but that's just to say that sometimes, especially if you're a first time home buyer, the home that you purchase, don't be so set. Don't, it's not your forever home. Realistically, most homeowners stay in their first home for five to 10 years. So I've been in my home in two and a half years, and I've been looking at ways to actually in the next two and a half years exit. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, I will be good with that five years. It's been a great starting point. So I think that that second key point is to really looking at what does it mean for you to have a home right now? What can you afford right now? Because especially if you're in the DMV area, and especially if you're in DC, it's going to appreciate. Your home is going to be a moneymaker. And at the end of the day, even if you are in a jurisdiction, you have a rental property for however long you want it, or you can always resell it if five, 10 years down the road, you grow, you have family, you need to take care of your mother, you need more space where you want to move, whatever that may look like, you can always sell your home and you can always rent it out. So that's what I tell people, you know, that come in and say, well, this is going to be my only home purchase. Probably not. And if that's what you're thinking, we need to have some coffee. We need to sit down and talk about the ways that real estate can really work for you. So that's the second thing I tell my clients is 
you know, just really look, don't look at it as your forever home. Look at it as your first home and your right now home and look at it as an investment. What are you comfortable in now, but what can it do for you in the future? Because you're probably not going to be in this home for no longer than five years. Mm. Um, and then the third thing is looking at a co-buyer. Uh, and excuse me, a co-borrower. And sometimes that works. Sometimes we have parents that say, oh yeah, I really definitely want to help out. Like I've signed on your rental property. I've signed on your car. Yeah. Why not sign on a home? So if you have a trusted adult or a trusted co-borrower, such as a amazing sister or, you know, a mother or a father, or a, you know, grandfather, whatever it may look like, you're, you still own the home. Your, your name is still on the deed. Um, that's still completely in your control. But however, having that extra person that has a little bit more credit history may not have any more, may not have any student loans, may have a successful business, may own a few other properties, whatever that will look like. Sometimes that, that, that's all banks need to see um, to be able to have them on uh, the mortgage. So I think that, like I said, the three things that can work um, would first be really looking at um, that lending process and looking at the principal and interest and seeing if you can get your, your student loans consolidated the or an income, excuse me, an income-driven repayment plan. And the second would be is understanding that this is the home that may not be your forever home, but it is an investment. You are building wealth when you're purchasing a property, especially in this area. And the third would be seeing if you have a co-borrower, a co-borrower that can work and you never know uh, what that can qualify you for and what, where that can take you. So. I love it. And I want to be very clear with my listeners that that's a great three options to consider. The last one, getting a co-bar, I think is a really good one for individuals who need that second signature to really seal the deal with the bank. But I definitely think you and them have to have a serious conversation about expectations because understand that when you co-sign for any type of debt, whether it's student loan debt, car loan, or a mortgage, you are essentially saying to the bank, I can afford to pay this mortgage if the borrower, the primary borrower cannot. I can afford this house in addition to my current expenses and bills if for any reason my friend, cousin, sister, daughter, son stops paying this mortgage. And a lot of people really need to think about that because nothing in life is guaranteed, not a job, not a business, and not even life, right? That always leads me back to one of my top discussions, which is in addition to preparing yourself for home ownership, you should also think about life insurance because that is a great way to ensure that your family who may be living in the home with you is taken care of. And that they have the resources they need if the worst happens with you and you pass away, but they want to be able to own the home or stay in the home. Life insurance is a great way to inherit tax-free income to pay off the home and allow the family to afford to stay there. So that's my life insurance soapbox because I'm very passionate about that. <laughs> yeah, you got me on life insurance. <laughs> yes, you know, and it, my and why so would happy. you? Like I held her hand and cheered her on to buy her first. <laughs> she was closing. I was like, "Okay, girl. Now, who is on the hook for this house? Right. And who's supporting? We need you right. to get insurance." And she was my clients. So uh, let's not overlook the other things you need to be planning for in addition to a home, right? Because and I feel so much better. Yeah, I feel so much better. I I was I was against at first. There was a little bit of pushback, 
I mean, because my original thinking was, well, if I'm thinking about life insurance and I'm thinking about death and I want to live until I'm 120. So this is counterproductive to my thought process of life insurance. And then I sat down and thought about it. And I'm like, okay, in the world we live in and everything that's going on, I think it's so important to make sure that we have options for our family. And, and I always thought about the hassle, like, you know, anything, God forbid, were to happen to me how would my family be able to sell my house and do this? It would be a lot. And, and bear, you know, so I started to think, okay, I am a homeowner. I did make this adult decision. And part of being an adult is also planning for the future and well on to a future that you may not even foresee. So, you know, and I think that's what you've taught me about savings. It's what you've taught me about life insurance. And I'm so grateful for that because I do feel a lot more secure knowing that I have options and my family has options. Um, if there were any type of emergency. So Yay. yeah, yeah, that's a victory. <laughs> that means that what I'm doing is working. So guys, <laughs> this has been an awesome conversation. I hope that you have gotten some gems to help empower you to pursue home ownership. Please share this episode with friends and family that you think would find it valuable. Before we wrap up, please tell my listeners, how can they get in contact with you if they want to follow your journey and reach out to you to help them sell or buy a home? How do they get in touch with Rihanna Miller? Yes, absolutely. Well, my Instagram is at Rihanna underscore Miller. I made it super easy. Um, (laughs) And then my uh, email, if anyone would like to contact me via email, is Rihanna, R-Y-A, nna.miller at compass.com. And if you have any questions, big or small, and the amazing thing about the company that I work for is we have reach across the entire country and the entire world. So if you're listening in through Dubai, if you're in California, if you're in Alabama, if you're in Texas, let me know and I can also refer you to an amazing, excuse me, amazing Compass agent or another realtor that I know in the area that can help you for your specific needs. I have a great, great just base of awesome mentors and real estate investors and people that have been doing this for 10, 20, 30 years. So if you have any questions, no matter what jurisdiction you're in, um, just let me know and I can connect you with the right person. Or if you're in the DMV, I would love to connect with you myself and and help you build that wealth that is so, so important. Thank you so much, Apania, for having me. I am so fortunate that I've met you as not only a mentor, but a financial advisor is, is, you know, everything. And I think that is what we need more of, um, just to reach out to people, ask questions, connect and work together to really get to this next stage of economical independence and, and really what that looks like to live freely and to live happy. So I agree. Financial freedom for everyone. Let's get it. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Rihanna Miller. It was so much fun to talk to her. We always have a good time when we get together. And I hope you got some really good gems about investing in real estate, especially if you're in the DC, Maryland and Virginia area. Some of the things that I learned was that no matter what, in this area specifically, real estate prices are holding steady. So you still have competition out there. It's very important that you do your research and be prepared to bid on several properties before you close on your first or second deal. It's also helpful to use a real estate agent to become more familiar with the community you're interested in living in or investing in. So take advantage of those opportunities. 
And most importantly, get your finances in order and make sure your financial plan includes life insurance, especially if you are a homeowner or a real estate investor with a significant amount of real estate. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Remember, you can catch all the details and connect with Rihanna through the show notes. Check them out on thepurposeofmoney.com. And remember to connect with me on social at The Purpose of Money on Instagram and at Purpose underscore Money on Twitter. Hope you guys enjoy the next episode. Don't forget to tune in next week for the last episode of the series, with Kendra Barnes of Key Resource. Thank you for listening to the Purpose of Money podcast. For more resources and information, check out my website, thepurposeofmoney.com. And while you're there, please sign up for our newsletter so you have the latest information on new episodes and blog posts. Until next time, keep creating freedom in your life today.